This is actually called God with us, but so close, Matt. Um, Jesus with would have been a great title for the series, and maybe next time we can, we can tweak it. Hopefully, um, some slides are going to appear on the screen. There with us, how does God engage with humanity? And, and this morning, we are going to zoom in on Jesus with women. So that's where the, the link comes. Now, I'm aware that speaking into this subject, um, the ground beneath our feet is holy ground. Um, and therefore want to kind of journey with, with deep sensitivity, knowing that the church has historically caused a huge amount of pain in this area. Um, so should we pray just before we launch in? And if possibly, possible, could the slides appear on the screen as well there? If I can see them, that would be a massive help, but no wise if not. So Holy Spirit, we ask that you'd come now. And as we have an honest conversation with an open heart and the open scriptures, Lord, that you would, you would bring healing, you'd give us a vision of what life can be like in the kingdom of God. So we say, come Holy Spirit. Amen. So before I, I launch in, um, if I was to try and summarize the way Jesus interacts with women in the gospel narratives, one word springs to mind and it would be the word unbelievable. The vision of Jesus, the example of Jesus is so pure, so beautiful that in parts of history, it's been beyond belief. It's almost been too good to be true. And therefore, a small group have basically thought, well, well, maybe it wasn't the case. Like maybe he did interact with women in a sexual manner. Maybe his relationship with Mary Magdalene had a sexual dimension to it. Maybe they were married. Maybe they had kids because the example is beyond belief. So if you've read Dan Brown, The Da Vinci Code, you'll know that that's a popularization of an ancient myth. But as we open up the scriptures this morning, we discover that his example is totally beautiful, entirely pure, but it's true and it's an example for us to follow. So if we look at the sort of context in which Jesus ministered in, because the context will bring to life just how beautiful his model is. Um, as we look at history, as we look back at the first century, this is going to be fairly painful, but we can't ignore history. We've got to acknowledge it, that the context of the ancient world and therefore life in the first century, they had a very low view of women. So we've got source texts like Philo, Josephus, other texts, where we get these examples, that the rabbis in the first century they taught a threefold daily prayer so imagine as a, a Jewish boy or a man you praying this prayer daily that means it's a deeply formative prayer that shapes your imagination um, praise be to God that he's not created me a Gentile praise be to God that he's not created me a woman praise be to God that he's not created me a slave so in the ancient world in terms of the hierarchy of being you had the animal kingdom and then just above you had slaves and Gentiles and women like horrific but you've got to embrace that that was the mindset of the ancient world and life in the first century so in Jewish law a woman was not a person but a thing she had no legal right she couldn't testify in court she was entirely the possession of her husband or if she was unmarried her father and he could do whatever he liked with her now 
If we look further afield into Greek culture, we realise it was even worse in Greek culture. So a Greek philosopher once said, we have courtesans for the sake of pleasure, we have concubines for the sake of daily cohabitation, we have wives for the purpose of having children legitimately and of having a faithful guardian for all our household affairs. Women in Greek culture lived completely secluded lives. They took no part in public life. They never appeared on the streets alone. They never even appeared at meals or social occasions. They had their own apartments where no one was allowed to enter apart from the husband. And if things were bad in Jewish culture and Greek culture, they were even worse in Roman culture. Now, again, let me just introduce you a term that some sociologists use, chronological snobbery, which means we look back at history and we basically say, oh, how behind were they? How oppressive were they? And yet, in the last few years, we've been shaken by some of the events happening in the culture around us. The Me Too campaign, exposing sexual harassment of women in the workplace. And in the last couple of years, the horrific murder of Sarah Everard and Nicole Smallman and Bieber Henry, and the list goes on. We can't just say this is something that took place in history. We're recognizing that some of this is happening right now in the surrounding culture. So let me just offer some stats that you can see. And I'm aware that these aren't stats. They're actually stories. This is the experience of many women in our nation. And it will be the experience of a number of women in this room. So Lord, pour out your grace as we just expose the reality of the culture that we are a part of. So 20% of women have experienced some type of sexual assault since the age of 16. That's the equivalent to 3.4 million female victims. 3.1% of women, that's over 500,000 aged 16 to 59, have experienced a sexual assault in the last year. Approximately 85,000 women aged 16 to 59 experience rape, attempted rape, or assault by penetration in England and Wales alone every year. Around 15% of those who experience sexual violence, only, sorry, 15% of those who experience sexual violence report it to the police. 31% of young women aged 18 to 24 report having experienced sexual abuse in childhood. Almost a third experiencing sexual abuse in childhood. A third of people believe women who flirt are partially responsible for being raped. Like that's got a name, it's misogyny when women are blamed for the sexual violence they've experienced at the hands of men. Conviction rapes, rates for rape are far lower than other crimes with only 5.7% of reported rape cases ending in a conviction for the perpetrator. I think our response should be, Lord, have mercy. Lord, have mercy. If you want to look at a graph that outlines sex offences recorded in London since 2011, it's constantly growing. And then if you look at the, the last year or so lockdown, you can see exponential growth. Listen to these words from Angela Davis. She says, I'm no longer accepting the things I cannot change. I'm changing the things I cannot accept. 
As human beings, as followers of Jesus, this is a moment for us as the church to rise up and say, we will not accept this on our watch. We're gonna look at the example of Jesus. We're gonna follow the way of Jesus in how he engages with women. So if I was to summarize the way that Jesus engages with women, here's a threefold summary. that He restores dignity, he releases destiny, he redefines family. So let's firstly look at he restores dignity. So if you've got a Bible, let's turn to John chapter eight, an incredible text of Jesus in a conversation with a woman who'd been caught in the act of adultery. So we'll start reading from verse two. You can see it on the screen if you don't have a Bible with you. So at dawn, Jesus appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him. And he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. Now, to understand this text, you actually need to sort of read the chapter beforehand. So the context is Jesus is in the temple courts. They are celebrating the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths, a key part in the Jewish story. And in the middle of the celebrations, Jesus basically stands up and says, let anyone who's thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. This is Jesus taking some of the prophetic words from the Old Testament in Isaiah and Ezekiel 47 and basically saying, I'm the one you've been waiting for, the Messiah, the one that can offer you living water so that you'll never be thirsty again. It's a huge claim, right? So the crowds begin to discuss it and then the Pharisees begin to step in. This is what the Pharisee says, you mean he's deceived you also? Because the crowds are debating whether he could be the Messiah. Have any of the rulers or the Pharisees believed in him? Like, no, but this mob knows nothing of the law. There is a curse on them. So this is the Pharisees basically slamming the crowd saying they do not understand the Torah. Now, the Pharisees were steeped in the the Torah, the the legal system of the Jewish people in the first five books of the Bible. So they knew this text from Leviticus chapter 20 that says, if a man commits adultery with another man's wife, with the wife of his neighbour, both the adulterer and the adulteress are to be put to death. This is absolutely crystal clear from the Torah, right? That the punishment is the man and the woman are to be punished for the crime. So there should be a question in our mind, where's the guy? What they've clearly done is they've grabbed the woman that's caught in the act of adultery. They've brought her before Jesus in the temple courts. Where is the guy? So already we're beginning to see there's oppression going on here. In other words, the Pharisees violate the law in order to enforce it. They don't actually care about the Torah. This is the oppression of a woman and they are setting Jesus in a trap. Now to understand the trap then, Jesus basically has these two options. They say, what should we do with the woman? Either stone her or not stone her. Those are the options, but it is a trap. Here's the first part of the trap then. If Jesus says you're right according to the Torah, she should be stoned. We know that in the, in the temple courts, particularly during a Jewish festival, the Roman authorities were watching. 
They wanted to make sure there was no uprising, no rioting. So there would have been Roman soldiers in the outer courts watching this take place. You also need to know that the Romans had forbid the Jewish people from executing their own. In other words, outworking some of the the Torah. So here's an example, John 18, 31. This is part of the crucifixion narrative where Pontius Pilate says, take Jesus yourselves and judge him by your own law, but we have no right to execute anyone they objected. In other words, um, they weren't allowed to execute people. So when they say to Jesus, like, what should we do? If Jesus says, yes, according to the Torah, you should stone her, so stone her, then he's going to face the full fury of the Roman authorities. Well, what's the second option then? The second option is he says, look, don't stone her. And if he says don't stone her, he's going to face the full fury of the Jewish authorities. This is a well-crafted trap. And notice that no one other than Jesus cares about the woman. This is politics, right? Where there's no regard for the individual, the person. And and we see this all the time in our cultural moment. High-level politics, like all these debates, like identity politics about tribes, but who's caring about the individual, the one who's experiencing oppression and in deep levels of pain? How does Jesus respond? And honestly, this is just so beautiful. He bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, let any of you who's without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Now remember, this is a Jewish crowd. They knew the scriptures. We all like sheep have gone astray, each of us to our own way. In other words, we've all sinned. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. So Jesus is basically saying the one without sin, you should play the role of judge here and you should throw the first stone. Again, he stooped down, wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away, one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left, with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said, then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin like this is an extraordinary moment how would you articulate this moment i'd suggest it's a return to eden type moment eve the archetypal woman in this wide open space this garden naked unashamed fully alive fully free And then you've got this woman surrounded by a mob with rocks in their hand, naked, drowning in shame, cowering, waiting to receive the first rock to pierce the skin. And then she hears, doof, doof, doof. The stones hitting the ground, the crowd dispersing. And Jesus saying, like, do they condemn you? nor do I condemn you. Go and leave your life of sin. In other words, welcome to the wide open space of the new creation, the wide open space of the kingdom of God. She leaves that encounter, naked probably still, unashamed because she's experienced deliverance and grace and she moves into a wide open space, a new life with God. 
Kenneth Bailey, a Middle Eastern scholar, he summarizes this passage like this. The Pharisees planned to humiliate Jesus, but were themselves put to shame before a crowd. A few minutes earlier, the terrified woman had expected brutal violence and a painful death. Suddenly, the Pharisees are angry at Jesus rather than at her. At great cost, he shifted their hostility from her to himself, and he doesn't even know her name. She knows that Jesus' opponents will be back with a bigger stick and that Jesus is in the process of getting hurt because of what he's doing for her. She's the recipient of a costly demonstration of unexpected love that saves her life. Right? When we talk about the cross, we often say Jesus died for our sins. That is theologically true, but it is historically true. Jesus died because he stepped into moments like this to defend and offer dignity to someone that had been ostracized and had become an outcast. She knows that she committed a crime and there's a penalty. She also knows that Jesus is stepping in and he's on a journey towards death. How much does Jesus care about the dignity of women? And the answer is enough to die. Enough to die, enough to give up his life. So secondly then, Jesus releases destiny. So it is incredible that in this revolution that Jesus is inaugurating, women are constantly invited into and released into leadership. Let me give you some examples then. The news of the incarnation is first given to a woman, Mary. Jesus allowed women to travel with him, fund his ministry and be his disciples. So listen to this text then. This is Luke chapter 8. After this, Jesus travelled from one town and village to another, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. The twelve were with him in other words the 12 disciples but there were many other disciples beyond the 12 we'll come back to that and also some women and they are named Mary and Joanna and Susanna and many others these women were helping to support them out of their own means in other words Luke who's the most forensic, he's the doctor, most forensic in terms of his you know, writing of the account of the life, death, resurrection of Jesus. He wants everyone to know that the ministry of Jesus was funded by women. So women were drawn into this inner circle, but they were the ones supporting the ministry of Jesus. In the context of the first century, that is mind-blowing. That's extraordinary. Thirdly then, Jesus raised up women to become leaders in his movement. So listen to this text, Luke chapter 10. As Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. She had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. Key key phrase, sat at the Lord's feet, sat at the rabbi's feet. Now, if you know the story, the two sisters get in an argument and, and Martha basically says, Mary, this is really embarrassing. The rabbi's here with his disciples. They are sat at his feet, learning from him. Him, You're meant to be with me, showing hospitality, preparing the meal. This is super awkward. You've crossed some serious boundaries to sit at the feet of the rabbi and start learning. But Jesus says, no, 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 Martha, you've misunderstood. She's doing the better thing. Like she's chosen to take on the role of a disciple, learning from the rabbi so that she can be raised up to be a rabbi, a leader in this movement. Now the same writer, Luke, in his second volume, this is the book of Acts, he talks about Paul and he uses exactly the same phrase, that Paul was a Jew born in Tarsus, brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, a different rabbi, same phrase. How did Paul grow into leadership? He was educated at the feet of a rabbi. Exactly the same phrase. 
Mary, educated at the feet of the greatest rabbi in human history. Right? This, this is more than just being a disciple. This is someone who's being raised up to be a leader in a movement. Like This is extraordinary. In the context of the first century, Jesus raising up women to become leaders in the movement. Here's an, another example then. Jesus first revealed his identity as Messiah to a Samaritan woman. Like She's the first person in history, in terms of the gospel narratives, to understand his Messiahship. He doesn't reveal it first to Peter or James or John or his best buddy Lazarus. He first reveals it to this woman. Um, so we're going to be in John 4 very briefly. Now this is another incredible text as Jesus breaks all kinds of boundaries to engage in this conversation. First boundary, it's a man in conversation with a woman in the middle of the day. Second boundary, it's a Jew talking to a Samaritan. There was incredible hostility. They hated one another um, That's the second boundary. The third boundary is that a rabbi is communicating with an outcast, a sinful woman. That's why she's, you know, getting some water in the middle of the day. All of the other women would go at the cool of the day, morning or evening, and they'd go together for protection. But because she's an outcast, she's been completely rejected. She has to go on her own in the middle of the day in the intense heat. And they get into a conversation, and this is extraordinary. Jesus takes the posture and the position of weakness and offers her the position of strength. He basically says, I actually need your help. This is an incredible way to dignify this woman, this outcast. It's like, I, I don't have anything to draw water. Is there any chance you can help me? This is the, the position of weakness to dignify the woman. Um, she's blown away. She can't understand why they're in a conversation. Um, Jesus basically says, I can offer you living water. That If you drink of that water, you'll never thirst again. They get into a conversation where he prophesies over her. She panics. They get into a theological conversation. I know I'm cutting a lot of the story short. But let's pick it up in verse 25. The woman said, I know that the Messiah called Christ is coming. And when he comes he'll explain everything to us this all of this kind of talk about living water he'll explain everything to us and then Jesus declared I the one speaking to you I am he this is the first moment he reveals his identity as the Messiah it's to a Samaritan woman he doesn't even know the name of this is extraordinary Just then the disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman. But no one asked, what do you want or why are you talking with her? Then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? They came out of the town and made their way towards him. Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of her testimony. Just just to sort of really get this through. This is the first evangelist in church history right who understands who Jesus really is begins to proclaim it and others come to faith because of it so he first reveals his identity to a woman the first evangelist in church history is a woman Um, but let's keep going on then the first witnesses to the resurrection were women and therefore the first preachers of the full gospel proclamation that Jesus died and rose again they were women now in the context of the first century this is totally extraordinary why 
Well, this is what one commentator said, the exclusion of women from courts was normative. Courts were made by men and for men. Babylonian, Egyptian, Canaanite women did not go to court, nor did Greek women, even in later times. Roman women could give testimony in court, but they could not be witnesses at, at a will. So in other words, in, in the context of the first century where women couldn't even give testimony in a court, Jesus' first appearance post-resurrection was to women. And they are the ones that go running with the good news, the first proclaimers of the gospel proclamation that Jesus is alive. Like this is extraordinary. It truly is unbelievable. Like how would you articulate this? I want to suggest that you articulate this. If we go through it as a summary, the news of the incarnation given to a woman, the first miracle performed John 2 for a woman, that he allowed women to travel with him. They funded his ministry. He raised up women to become leaders in the movement. He first revealed his identity as Messiah to a Samaritan woman. She became the first evangelist in church history. The first witnesses to the resurrection were women. The first preachers of the resurrection were women. How do you articulate all of that? And I want to suggest it's a reversal of the four. That if you go back to Genesis 3, because of humanity's sin, rejecting God, turning in on themselves, we know that part of the curse, that men will rule over women. That's patriarchy, right? What you see in the ministry of Jesus is the kingdom of God breaking in. The new creation breaking in. And there isn't even a trace of patriarchy, right? Like women are liberated, like Adam and Eve in the garden, to share in the rule and reign of God. So when it comes to women being released into leadership, I know that there's a stream within the church that would believe that women can't rule over men or, or lead men. Um, and they would be taking certain verses from the Apostle Paul to sort of like provide a foundation for that belief. I believe in a different interpretation of Paul, but I can tell you where they don't get it from. They do not get it from the ministry of Jesus. Like some would say, but, but 12 disciples were men. And that's because Jesus was reforming Israel around himself. There were many other women, part of the disciples being raised up too, right? The 12 disciples, that was a symbol. And in the context of Israel, it needed to be 12 men to get the symbol across that Israel is being reformed around Jesus, it's not a description of the qualities of a leader. Otherwise, I wouldn't be able to lead, right? Because it was 12 Jewish men. And that would rule out me and many of us that serve in leadership, right? But it isn't about the qualities of a leader. Um, Jesus constantly models releasing women into leadership. This is a summary from Dorothy Sayers. She says, perhaps it was no wonder that women were first at the cradle and last at the cross. They'd never known a man like this. There never has been such another, a prophet and teacher who never nagged at them, never flattered or coached them or patronised, who never made sick jokes about them, who rebuked without quarrelousness and praised without condescension, who took their questions and arguments seriously, who never mapped out this fear for them, never urged them to be feminine or jeered at them for being female, who had no axe to grind and no uneasy male dignity to defend, who took them as he found them and was completely unselfconscious. There was no act, no sermon, no parable in the whole gospel that borrows pungency from female perversity. Nobody could possibly guess from the words and deeds of Jesus that there was anything funny or inferior about women's nature. Extraordinary. Unbelievable. 
Thirdly then, Jesus redefines family. So Matthew 12, while Jesus was still talking to the crowd, his mother and brother stood outside waiting, wanting to speak to him. Someone told him, your mother and brothers are standing outside wanting to speak to you. He replied, who is my mother and who are my brothers? Pointing to his disciples, male and female. Pointing to his disciples, male and female. He said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. This is extraordinary, right? That Jesus is reframing family, right? That that family in the kingdom of God isn't just about genetics, right? It's about doing the will of the father in heaven. So again, in an age, in a context where if you were unmarried as a woman, you would be vulnerable. Jesus is basically saying things operate differently in the family of God. Like we can't afford to idolize marriage and therefore companionship, comfort, completion comes in the context of marriage. Jesus is like, no, 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 that comes in relationship with me. Now fast forward 2,000 years, let's just be really honest. In the church, we've often idolized marriage idolized marriage, right? We've basically said Jesus is gonna be a great source of help, but if you really wanna thrive and be fulfilled, you need to find a partner in whom you'll find companionship, comfort, and completion. And, And therefore, often, we come to church and we are looking for the right partner. And and this has had devastating effects on the church. Number one, it's dethroned Jesus. We've proclaimed that he's Lord, but in reality, we've thought that marriage would fulfill us. And when you dethrone Jesus, you empty the church of power. So I want to say again, the idolization of marriage has had devastating effects on the church. Secondly, it has created a way of operating, a way of treating one another that's dehumanizing. Because people come to church often looking for the right partner. And in that process, we begin to objectify people. We begin to look at them. Maybe they could be the one to satisfy my longings and my needs for fulfillment. And the way we often talk about one another, particularly in, the, in, in, in a moment of singleness when you're really longing to find that partner, you, listen to the language like, oh, he's a little bit short for me. Right, that's a wound from my own story. Um, You know, when people begin to sort of say things about you, like, wow, I didn't realise I was an object that you were trying to sort of like fit. Oh, he's not my intellectual equal. No. Oh, she's great. I'm not sure she's fun enough for me. We talk about products like that. It's a good phone. The battery life isn't great. It's a good computer. The processing speed isn't great, right? But when we talk of humanity as if they are products, something's gone horribly horribly wrong. What we see in in Jesus is that before someone's ever a potential partner, they are an actual sister. This would transform church if whether single, married, wherever you are on your journey, if we came and, and, and the mindset was, I wanna hang out with my brothers and sisters, that would transform the life of the church. It would also transform our mission, by the way, if we saw women in our community and thought, that's my sister. So for example, if there was a woman on the tube getting harassed, if that was your sister, I'm almost certain you'd step in and just check if she was okay. Or can I just let you know, she is your sister. 
made in the image and likeness of God. If you're a guy and you're walking home and you see a woman that you think might be being followed, if it was your sister, you wouldn't think twice. Can I just let you know that is your sister made in the image and likeness of God. We need to rediscover what it means to be family in the kingdom of God, family in the church. So let me just close with this then. What does it look like for us to honour women in the church, beyond the church? Four quick things then. Number one, we choose to love. What what does it mean to love? It means to, to lay down our lives for the sake of the other to prefer the other. What does it mean to to love the women in our community and beyond our community, whether you're a guy or a girl? It means to lay our lives down so that they might thrive, right? If we were modeling this in the church, the world would begin to see a picture, a foretaste of the new creation and they would be drawn towards it. So we to be marked out by love. Secondly, There are moments where it's right and proper to defend. Now, I'm aware that this can be fairly controversial to say something like this, but because of the physiological differences between men and women, there are moments where it is right and proper to defend anyone that might be experiencing any form of vulnerability. If you read through the Gospels, it will be your conclusion again and again and again. When Jesus sees vulnerability at the hands of the systems of his day, he steps in to defend and bring dignity. There are moments where there will be opportunities for us to defend and it is entirely right that we would do so in following the way of Jesus. Thirdly, we exalt we raise up. Paul says in his letter to the church in in Corinth, he basically says there are moments where parts of the church haven't been honoured, like being overlooked, being a source of shame. What's the remedy in a moment like that? He says they should receive special honour. Like I believe that that in the church, women should be especially honoured. Because in church history, and I'm talking recent church history, the church has created a huge amount of pain in this area. And if you as a woman have experienced pain or silencing or you've diminished in a church context because of oppressive leadership, I want to say I am so sorry that you've experienced that. That isn't the way of Jesus. That isn't the call of the church. And we want St. Saviours to be a place that especially honours women in our community because that is the clear teaching of Paul and it is the clear way of Jesus. And finally then, we want to champion women. And by that I mean we want to, like Jesus, raise women up to play their full role in the kingdom story, both in the church and beyond the church. And I think that means, honestly, for some of us, particularly guys, thinking intentionally, what would it look like to champion the women around you? What would it look like to not put yourself first, but to think, how can I champion someone else's journey? Whether they're starting up a business, serving as a teacher in a secondary school, a single mum, whatever the journey might be, how can I actually lay my life down to champion someone else so that they can thrive in what they do and know that they are loved, backed and championed? Again, like 
if we started to do this in the church, we would be a beacon of light to the surrounding culture. So let me close with this quote. This is Christine Kane, who says, God's image is only fully reflected in both man and woman. When we denigrate a woman, we're in fact diminishing part of the image of God. When we exclude women, we exclude part of God. When we put women down, we tarnish the image of God. No one dignifies, affirms, and celebrates women like the God of the Bible. Therefore, it should be the church that leads the way and sets the example of placing value upon womanhood. Why don't we stand?